All right, well, thank you all for attending our session on innovative pedagogy with material objects to kick off the afternoon. I hope that everybody is well restored um, by lunch after the morning sessions. My name is Elizabeth Yale. I'm in the history department at the University of Iowa and affiliated with the Center for the Book there as well. And I'm excited to welcome you all to talk about teaching with material objects. Um, our goal for today is to talk about specific objects and short presentations. Um, how our speakers who are dealing with a number of different kinds of objects ranging from quilts to audio recordings to architectural objects to early modern texts, how they teach them, how they communicate about those with their students in the classrooms that they work in. Um, our session chair today is Michael F. Suarez, director of the Rare Book School. In just a few minutes, introduce him before I turn it over to him. He's the director of Rare Book School, professor of English, university professor, and honorary curator of special collections at the University of Virginia since 2009. He formerly held a joint appointment as J.A. Cavanaugh, Professor of English at Fordham University and as Fellow and Tutor in English at Campion Hall, Oxford University. He's received the DPhil M Studies MA BA from Oxford University, the MTH and MDiv from the Weston Jesuit School of Theology and a BA from Bucknell University. He's written widely on various aspects of 18th century English literature, capaciously, as we all know, mm -hmm. bibliography and book history, and has held research fellowships from the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study at Harvard University, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the American Council of Learned Societies, and the Folger Shakespeare Library. Um, we're delighted to welcome Michael here today uh, to lead our session on innovative pedagogy with material objects. So with that, I'll turn it over to you. Warm thanks for convening this session, um, really being the brains behind the operation in so many ways. Um, we have a really great panel today, and um, I think the attendance here shows that, but I also think that the, the fact that there's standing room only and people sitting in the back, if you have trouble seeing, you may need to come to the side a little bit, um, shows how, how important pedagogy is to all of us. And, and how teaching with artifacts is, is such a supremely powerful thing. I, since they're sort of conjoint presentation, I'd like to introduce both Raylin and Stephanie together, if I may, and then so that there'll be a little bit of less break between what the two of you are, are, are attempting to do. Raylin Barnes is a cultural historian who specializes in the history of racism, the book, and popular culture in North America. Her current book project, Darkology, When the American Dream Wore Blackface, received funding from the Library of Congress, the Mellon Foundation, and the NEH. Originally from Anaheim, California, she received a BA in history from UC Berkeley and her PhD from Harvard. In 2018, Ray Lynn will join the history department at Princeton as an assistant <coughs> professor in American cultural history. Ray Lynn is one of our Mellon Fellows and has brought great distinction to that program. Stephanie Beck Cohen is an Africanist art historian specializing in Liberian art. Her exhibit, Soft Diplomacy, featuring Liberian quilts in American diplomatic collections, was funded by the Center for Craft, Creativity, and Design, and opened at the Western Carolina University Fine Art Museum in January 2017. She has a chapter on Liberian women's transatlantic quilting networks in 
to turn this world over, black women's internationalism in historical perspective, forthcoming from the University of Illinois Press. She also has an article on Liberia's National Museum coming out next year in the journal Museum Anthropology. She lives and works in Singapore. Please join me in welcoming both of these distinguished scholars. One thing I often hear at Rare Book School is that a lot of institutions don't have rare book collections or special collections, and the really exciting thing about quilts is they're literally everywhere. Once you start looking for them, you almost can't escape them. Students have them in their homes, corporations have them hanging up, and almost every small historical society that I have ever been to or regional museum has a quilt, and so that's part of why we wanted to talk about this today, because I think it's an interesting and very accessible way for students to learn how to read texts, especially by um, illiterate people. So to give you a personal anecdote, in 2010, I brought my grandma to the Bowers Museum in Santa Ana, California, and it's a very small local museum, and based off of her attempts to whistle all of the Beatles songs to hear herself echo in the chambers, she was not having museum day with me. She was not into it. Um, that is until we came into a room filled with women's quilts. So while I was admiring the quilts for their colors and their patterns, she was able to read them in a way that I could not. She pointed out how many women had worked on a quilt, who had arthritis, who was using a pre-purchased pattern, who had a sewing machine, and where various fabrics came from internationally. 
She was unlocking a complex world of women who made bold political statements, who were engaged in larger consumer networks, and who were repurposing regional material goods to create an alternative historical record that she was able to read. So this challenged me. How can we teach our students to do this? How can we think about teaching them how to read competing historical narratives and everyday objects? Quilts are often created as a form of storytelling, of record keeping, and as international communication symbols, both by literate and non-literate people. And even within my own life, grandma would give us quilts to commemorate weddings for you know, the birth of babies. So there, all, there actually always was um, a purpose to them, but I just hadn't really thought about that before. Women have largely been shut out of publishing historically. So quilting itself, for many women, became a way to publish and to circulate texts, and they became objects that conveyed ideas about the nation and its relationship to international audiences as diplomatic gifts, which we'll get to later on in this presentation. So teaching how to read quilts as material texts expands the diverse and historical voices in our classroom. So with our remaining time, what we'd like to do is show you how we engage quilts in the classroom. And um, mainly, I have, two, I have two large objectives when I teach with quilts uh, with undergraduate students. The first one is uh, for students to engage quilts and their associated archival materials um, as types of texts and inclusive of the other texts that surround them. Um, and then the second one is that I'd like students to use material culture as a starting point for formulating research questions um, and bibliography projects. Uh, the first thing I do before we even enter the classroom is I assign Arthur Conan Doyle's uh, chapter one, Science of Deduction from Sign 4, um, as a way of preparing, um, as a way of preparing to uh, be active and do this in the classroom. It brings the students around to material culture study in a way that seems familiar through the use of popular character, fiction, as embedded in a narrative, um, and inspires them to observe, then ask questions, and then begin to analyze. And also prepare, prepares them to discuss issues like provenance and the circulation of objects and texts in general, how they change hands and contacts, um, and look for alternative voices that we can elicit through these objects that may be absent from the current written historical records and it primes them to actively engage and practice when they come to the classroom. So, can I have some help? We need four volunteers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. okay. All right, we have a corner. Two corners, thank you. One more, come on. Everyone's got legs. <laughs> 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 Ryan, do we this guy? All right. <laughs> Well, and you can see from the get-go that even bringing an object like this into the classroom reorients help reorients the physical space of the classroom. Um, if you guys wanted, you can come and stand around it as well. But in order to access the detail, you have to get close to it. You have to touch it. You have to manipulate it. And that's something that I understand from Mary Lynn. That happens at Rare Book School all the time, and what you do in your own institutions. You want people handling these objects. Um, so I have them observe the quilt. Um, first, doing a visual analysis, because I'm an art historian, <laughs> and uh, that's, our, that's our game. Um, they discuss its physical shape, its size, colors, patterns, and then I have them look more closely at the techniques used to put it together. How are these things cut? How are they stitched? How many stitches per an inch do you see? Are they, are they stitched closely together? Are they far apart? Can you see different hands in this? Um, it's kind of like reading different handwriting, almost, when you look at the different hands that work on a quilt. Um, and this leads them into questions about how long it might take to create the object, the practice needed to make a large quilt like this one, 
Um, and I was thinking about that uh, earlier when we were talking, somebody was talking about manuscripts this morning and seeing you know, marginalia and that sort of thing on it. It's very similar. Um, to help them learn to look, we also think about um, not only how they encounter the, uh, the quilt as an object in the classroom, but how they might encounter it in the archive. Um, and that's what you see behind you up here. And I'm happy to talk about this more later. This is actually a political document in and of itself. It's a pattern that was created during the Liberian Civil War. Um, so it's, uh, it does have a distinctly political meaning for the students who are learning to encounter it. Um, thanks, guys. You guys can sit down. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And I will fold it later. It's a beautiful thing about the Thank you very much. So when we look at the documents that um, they might encounter in the archive, um, this quote documentation form will give them information, like materials and patterns, something they've already started discussing. They can see um, how somebody who professionally evaluates these might encounter them um, in a museum institution um, or an archive. And it also gives them access to the specialized vocabulary used when talking about these objects. The text helps students form questions about the quilter and the quilt's provenance, um, and the person who documented or owned it. Um, all aspects of book study as well that contribute to the conclusions we draw about texts. Uh, we also look at the quilts to see if they have any textual clues that the objects are making. And this quilt, for example, um, does have a tiny text on it. It uh, has a quilt label somewhere on here. There we go. <laughs> it has a very small quilt label that gives additional textual information um, about the quilters uh, who made it. Um, Quilt labels that are printed, like this one, um, can also be handwritten. They look at what kind of information is included, um, what, uh, what can we do with that information. Um, and in addition to having a physical in the classroom, these digital um, collections can also have the same effect. There's a large series of quilt indices um, online, one really big one by Michigan State University. So even if you don't have a physical quilt, you don't have a historical home nearby, <laughs> if that is the case, you can still do this type of um, work, pedagogical work in the classroom um, using a digital collection. And that's what you're going to pick up with. Yeah, and I also should say if you have zero quilting experience, mm -hmm. a lot of these archives give you very detailed information. So if you have never sewn anything in your life, don't worry. This actually is a completely accessible genre to you. Um, so I am going to start out talking about a quilt. Um, looks like, let's see. All right, the, the major quilt disappeared. That's fine. I'll show it to you later. Um, when, I, when I teach Uncle Tom's Cabin, one thing that I notice in college classes is a lot of times you have some students who are very familiar with the text and other students who have no idea what's going on. And so I really like to start classes that deal with major texts with an object that throws things off, that everyone can come to with a clean slate and they have to interpret together. Um, and so... One of the ways that I start doing that is using a quilt from 1836, which is housed at the Society for the Preservation of New England Antiquities to get at larger issues of history of the book. Um, and so I tell my students, so basically if you were to look at the whole quilt, all of the blocks look like this. So if you can just imagine for the moment, all the blocks look like that. And I tell them that this is a mystery text. Um, and I say that this is an anti-slavery document, but what is it? I don't even tell them it's a quilt. I let them figure out, and eventually someone says, it's a quilt. Um, I ask them to, help, to guess, how do you think quilts might have been used during abolitionism? 
And that starts a dialogue and we'll have a conversation. And eventually we'll get to the fact that one of the ways that they were used was to fundraise, both by white and black abolitionists, both in the North and in the South. Three, I say, this is actually a performative text. And I ask them to think about what is this quilt arguing as an object? So eventually someone might say, oh, well, there's stars. The North Star is very important in abolitionism. And so we start having a conversation about what is the role of the North Star in sort of iconography as it relates to abolitionism. And we'll have a conversation drawing on the week's readings. But then if you zoom in on the center of the quilt, they normally notice there's a text. And this is a translation of what the text says. Um, and it says, Mother, when around your child you clasp your arms in love, and when with graceful joy you raise your eyes to God above, think of the Negro mother when her child is torn away, sold for a little slave, oh then, for that poor mother, pray. Um, and so that's what's on the center star. And so it gets them to think, what is the relationship between this text and the object? Right? What, what is going on? And then eventually, sometimes they piece together the fact that this is actually a baby quilt, um, which would make a very disturbing gift at a baby shower, I think. Um, but so, so we start having a conversation. What, what is going on here? The next thing I ask them is to, to try and come up with a list and brainstorm in groups. What information do we wish we have? Right? Like, if, if you wanted to do a research project, what is the information that you want to know about this quilt? as a text. Um, then we go into close readings. So this is a poem. So we would analyze that poem together, maybe spend you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes, depending on where the conversation went. Um, and then ultimately talk about what is the relationship between the poem and the physical object. And eventually one of the things I reveal is that the quilt was made out of cotton, not uh, picked by slaves. And so thinking about the concept of holding your baby in this quilt, in the North that you bought at an anti-slavery fair, knowing that most likely the woman who picked it has had all of her children sold away, and what that does in terms of building gender empathy in the abolitionist movement. So then, try to go bigger, contextualize it. So I tell them that this quilt was actually uh, used in a Smithsonian exhibit. It's still technically there. Um, and it, this exhibit tried to replicate the home that was used by five families um, on 16 Elm Street in Essex County, Massachusetts between 1760 and 1945. The home was owned by Josiah and Lucy Caldwell between 1822 and 1865. So you could have them do digital searches, try to find out about the family. One thing you quickly discovered from reading the Smithsonian brochure is they, they never actually owned this specific quilt. It's just representative. And so we have conversations about that, like how do you use things representative, uh, representatively in museum exhibits? Um, but being an obsessive person, I wanted to know who the heck did own this actual quilt. And the good and exciting thing is that there was a paper trail. So the actual quilt, the only thing that the Smithsonian said was that it was made in 1836 and sold at an anti-slavery fair. I found references to it in The Liberator and who purchased it. This is the man who purchased it. Um, the Liberator was an anti-slavery newspaper. Um, and finally, I walked them through a digital discussion of trying to find clues because we have the poem, we have information about you know, the quilts make, it's what it looks like, and we also have 
this review of it in the Liberator. And basically what they're normally able to reverse engineer is that this poem was pretty well circulated in female abolitionist tracks, and that ultimately the creator of the quilt was a famous person, Lydia Maria Child. Um, and in fact, what you then can find in the archives is she reaches a point in her career where she is so traumatized from multiple attempts to basically, her and her husband are almost lynched multiple times in Boston, that she reaches the point and says, I can't, I can't handle publishing anymore, so I will just make these quilts, and I will put my poem on these quilts and send them into the world anonymously. Um, and so that opens up a lot of conversations. So. And then finally, um, the one of the last stories, um, I use quotes in the classroom is to talk about how women can participate in diplomacy, international diplomacy, in the 19th and 20th centuries when they don't necessarily have um, access to being policy makers. Uh, and one of the ways they do that is by creating national dip diplomatic gifts that are uh, given between countries like Liberia and the United States. Um, you don't necessarily have to have a quilt in the classroom. You can use a photograph of a quilt. This is uh, from the, the John F. Kennedy uh, Presidential Library and Museum, and it's a photograph of um, John F. Kennedy receiving this quilt in the Oval Office, um, which is a pretty unique place to receive a diplomatic gift. Usually they're gifted between protocol officers, uh, sort of as, as an aside, uh, during a diplomatic visit. So to have it done in the Oval Office um, is a, a pretty big deal. Um, and he's receiving it from uh, Vice President um, Tolbert uh, as a gift from Liberian President at the time, William Tubman. Um, and the diplomatic quilt features the American and Liberian flags in satin. You can see it's even shiny in the photograph. Um, and students discuss this quilt together with the historical photograph. And then I ask them, like Ray Lynn, to look, uh, like Ray Lynn does, to look at other types of documents that might be included. So this is the quilt that's actually in the John F. Kennedy um, Library collection today. And as you'll see from the, um, the if you read the, uh, the post from the press secretary, uh, the original quilt actually has an incorrect number of the American flag stripes. <laughs> so a second one was made and uh, slipped into the collection two years later. So it's instances like that that get students really thinking about how do these material objects really convey information um, and what can these textual documents add to our knowledge about them. Um, and then finally, we talk about the JFK Library Museum's second quilt uh, from Liberia. And it was a gift to Jacqueline Onassis Kennedy after the assassination of President Kennedy um, from First Lady Victoria Tolbert. Um, and it's a memorial quilt of both Presidents Tolbert and John F. Kennedy um, together. Um, and, uh, and students get to um, enter into a different type of discussion um, about how does one memorialize this type of relationship and uh, what's the difference in gifting something um, between first ladies and presidents um, and it allows us to talk about the circulation of different types of cloth and leads us into another, uh, another line of questioning. So what uh, can and do students produce after a lesson like this? They can produce formal, formal visual analyses and um, critical reading with archival materials and primary sources, and they can also use them to visualize production and circulation networks. So I think that these are really objects that you can use to get at um, subjects and topics and questions that are outside of both the departments of art history and history that are really accessible in, um, in places all over the university. So to conclude, we basically just want to reiterate that if you're trying to think of texts that bring in you know, other groups of people who might not be readily available in your, in your classroom, that quilts are a great way to do this. Um, and if this is something you're interested in, we, we're pretty 
fluent with quilt archives. So you can come and talk to us and say, this is something that I'm interested in and we are happy to help you. This is something that we, we really believe in. And um, we find that students, men and women, get very, very excited about this and the ways in which it animates their own family history and heirlooms as well. It's a way of bringing the field site into the classroom um, in a very practical way that students, I think, appreciate um, in this in this time period. And I often get, oh my gosh, it's a detective <laughs> game. I love it. So, yeah. So we've had some very positive responses to uh, to treating these as our material text. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you. That was really great. Thanks so much. Um, Kyle Dugdale, who will speak next, has practiced architecture in London, Chicago, and New Haven, Connecticut. His research has been supported by the Andrew W. Mellon Fellowship of Scholars in Critical Bibliography, the John Hay Whitney Fellowship, the Harvey Fellows Program, and awards from the Society of Architectural Historians, the Bibliographical Society of America, and the Beinecke Rare Book and Manuscript Library. Mr. Dugdale's work has been published in a number of scholarly journals, including CLOG, Perspecta, the Journal of Architectural Education, and Utopian Studies. His first book, Babel's Present, was published in 2006. Uh, sorry, 2016. I just can't read. <laughs> In 2016, Mr. Dugdale was selected by the graduating students um, at Yale to be awarded the Professor uh, King Louis Wu Teaching Award. He received his BA from a school called the University of Oxford, an MArch from Harvard University, and a PhD from Yale University, where he was awarded the Theron Rockwell Field Prize. Please join me in welcoming our great scholar, Kyle Dugdale. Thank you very much. Uh, Michael didn't say this, but it's true anyway. I'm, I'm not a genuine bibliographer, um, and, and I'm afraid that will be painfully obvious. Um, but thank you for the welcome. So at the time, I thought it would be a great idea um, bibliographical architectures, uh, a seminar on the overlap uh, within architecture of, of several of my interests, the biblical, the bibliographic, and the graphic. Um, during the first week of class, uh, seminars at Yale School of Architecture are typically advertised at the entrances to the school's studios. Uh, this was to be a seminar that paid attention not only to text, but also to the material object that embodies the text. And so, in an effort to communicate materiality, I had 3D printed the class posters with the help of my TA, Aymar Marino Massa. We thought they looked rather good, even from behind. Uh, they were designed to hang from the open grating of the doors, but they were promptly taken down and I think destroyed by the administration on the grounds that they blocked airflow to the studios <laughs> beyond. 
I had also put a lot of effort, way too much effort, into uh, the printed syllabus itself, folio, I, I, I think, um, the typography on the cover of which was supposed to elicit a, a subliminal longing for genuine research, uh, to the point where I ran up against the limits of my software's digital capacities, particularly as regards a, a pernicious uh, built-in tendency to revert when printed to PDF, um, from old-style figures to modern figures, depending on the operating system. Uh, on the left, Apple. On the right, Microsoft. Between the 11th and 12th editions of Batty Langley's Builder's Jewel, both of which were apparently published in 1768, Microsoft reverted inexplicably to modern figures, but only for the 11th edition. I ended up annotating the syllabus with a sort of confession, uh, a confession that prompted a, a discussion about the political political implications inherent to the embodiment of numbers and about possible parallels within the practices of architecture. Um, to cap it off, it turned out that my first class, spring semester 2017, uh, was to be held on the very morning of the presidential inauguration. I was, I was in direct competition, it turned out, with Donald Trump, which, aside from casting a certain gloom over the class, seemed also to symbolize the transfer of power from one kind of authority uh, to another, one that did not care so much for books, but had, for better or for worse, paid a fair bit of attention to buildings, and especially to the image of buildings as constructed in part by writing and typography on buildings. That same morning, uh, we talked about a form of writing that had quite recently been stuck onto a lamp post just outside the building. We talked about what this surprisingly sophisticated object uh, might have been meant uh, to communicate for what readership and the role of its ephemeral format in the public space of the city, writing on the architecture of the city's street furniture, tracing the heritage not only of its format, its typography, and its text, but also its imagery, which turned out itself to be uh, architectural in a rather disconcerting way, and, and its trajectory also of annotation over the relatively brief course of the semester. We looked at other forms of architectural annotation in the immediate vicinity of the school. And here we're looking not only at the architecture of the entryway itself, which is designed to function as a quite precise frontispiece, as it were, to the institution, uh, but also at the subsequent annotations um, uh, in multiple layers, which tell the story of function and dysfunction, an original point of entry, the doorway, a consummately doorish doorway, uh, the later introduction of digital technology to control that entry, its subsequent explication through a distinctly uh, non-digital plaque above, its later editing to the point of meaninglessness, please blank repeatedly to scroll through directory, expressions of growing despair inserted with typographic precision into the plastic sleeve below. This unit is broken. If you have an appointment with someone in the building, please bang on the door. <laughs> Followed by a sort of catalogue of the Academy's best efforts to categorize and control points of access to the structures of human knowledge, all rendered helpless by the breakdown of access technologies, especially by the end of semester, at which point a few weeks before commencement, somebody had evidently tidied up the evidence of dysfunction, but without fixing any of the original problems. <laughs> 
all of this, by the way, uh, alongside a series of conversations about more conventional bibliographical materials, books and such, at the Beinecke, the Yale Center for British Art, the Haas Arts Library Special Collections, and so on. The embarrassment of Yale's bibliographical riches matched, despite the rare book school's best efforts, by the relative ignorance of the instructor, itself in turn only just ahead of a predictable unfamiliarity on the part of the students who were architecturally brilliant but not always reliably familiar with the name of Geoffrey Chaucer or, or Thomas More and, and not always naturally inclined toward a fascination for the medieval manuscript or the Renaissance treatise. We paid particular attention, as promised, to biblical materials, uh, not only for their inherently architectural form, but also for the clarity with which they raised architecturally provocative issues of transmission, of layered annotation, of readership, of the authority of text versus image, uh, and so on. We looked at the library building as itself both frontispiece and index to a certain explicitly bibliographical content, studying not only Yale Sterling Memorial Library, but also its shadow, the library shelving facility on a suburban site three miles away. We looked closely at annotated architectures, both nearby and further afield, for what we could learn from them about their conception, uh, materiality, and life. We uncovered some mysteries that remain unresolved to this day, including a particularly good example bolted onto the School of Architecture building itself, a, a form of printing in concrete, a, a 1963 sculpture by Robert Engman uh, that is itself a sort of directory, a curiously partial directory to the school's faculty. Uh, we didn't have time to, we didn't have to look too closely to notice that some of the text had been selectively edited by being filled in after the fact with concrete. We had to look a little more closely at earlier photographs to find that some previously edited text had in fact more recently been unedited uh, more selectively still. Uh, and so on for 14 weeks. Now, I've been talking today mainly about a sort of fairly straightforward annotation of architecture, but we covered a lot of other ground too. What did all of this accomplish? As one student, Amanda, put it, quote, through this class we now know that we don't know how to read, end quote. Uh, an expression perhaps of a sort of emerging Socratic ignorance, perhaps the best kind of ignorance. Another student, Gordon, wrote about a, a new way of looking at the world and the objects it contains, a new way of seeing, thinking, reading, and questioning. And even if there was some hyperbole involved in these statements, I think there was something there, and in my more hopeful moments I imagine that such reading might enable not only a sort of retrospective intelligence, but perhaps even, given that I teach at a school of architecture, a sort of prospective intelligence. After all, if buildings are indeed objects in time, as well as objects in space, space, time, and architecture, then the question arises as to whether we can craft our new architectures um, whether we can craft our new architectures with the same sort of precision as regards time that we hope to bring to the crafting of objects in space. I'm not sure that my discipline, the discipline of architecture, always thinks about this quite as much as it could. Uh, the Dutch 
architect Rem Koolhaas recently wrote in the introduction to a small book, it's subtitled uh, The Architecture of the Book, about the e-book as a provisional low point of the art of bookmaking. And he contrasted the flatness, the, quote, inevitable shininess and effortless perfection of the digital image with the pages of early books that have become uh, slightly three-dimensional through the pressure of the metal-type pressed letterpress, the wetness of the ink and the settlement of each page as part of the larger heft of the entire book. I might be inclined to expand that assessment to suggest that as regards architecture, there is a danger that what Coolhouse describes as our current digital facility and virtuosity could bring us to a new low point in our ability to engage with the material world more generally. If that were the case, then the sort of sensibility uh, that the seminar tried to provoke, to, to take the questions that are nurtured by bibliographical intelligence and apply them to the discipline of architecture could become, I think, quite important. In fact, I sometimes wondered whether the material of this class could not offer a bridge or perhaps just the foundations for a bridge across uh, the binary division between two opposing camps within the discipline. On the one hand, those who care a great deal about the thing itself, the building understood as materiality, affect, and atmosphere, and promptly get accused of dabbling in phenomenology, a dirty word for some. And secondly, those in the other camp who advocate for an architecture that is committed primarily to the concept and hardly at all to the thing itself, who think of themselves as defending architecture as an intellectual enterprise. This struggle for architecture's soul plays itself out in the pedagogy of the studio. Uh, but I believe that the chasm that celebrates, that separates these positions can be bridged, that it must be bridged, and that it always has been, in fact, one of the roles of a commitment to what has been known as the humanities to do exactly that. Thank you very much. If Ruskin were here, he would be completely discombobulated and very proud. <laughs> Our next speaker will be Adam Hooks, who is Associate Professor in the Department of English and the Center for the Book at the University of Iowa. He's the author of Selling Shakespeare, Biography, Bibliography, and the Book Trade and he's the curator for the newly launched digital exhibition, The Books That Made Shakespeare. Uh, the URL is easily found and really interesting to explore the site. His current projects, projects include a monograph, intriguingly entitled Faking Shakespeare, and the new Shakespeare census, a digital catalog of quarto and octavo copies of Shakespeare's works co-directed uh, with Zach Lesser at UPenn, uh, and as well as an open educational resource, Mark the Game, co-developed with Amy Chen at the University of Iowa. And one could go on and on. So let's hear from Adam. Um, to my Iowa colleagues in the audience, sorry I had uh, you had to come all the way to Philly. <laughs> um, I didn't tell you that the, the exhibitions, uh, online exhibition is ready. Um, so, uh, every now and then, 
an ambitious creative writing major will tell me that they want to learn how to write like Shakespeare. Um, and I always say, yeah, uh, I, <laughs> I can teach you how to write like Shakespeare because I'm going to teach you how to read like Shakespeare. Um, we always begin the semester by learning how to read like a Renaissance reader, focusing on the central concept of inventio, in which a reader, who is always also a writer, gathers and organizes textual evidence in order to, to create an inventory of materials that could then be incorporated into new texts and works. We discuss the skills, tools, and crucially privileges required to actively engage with texts in this manner, to not simply read, but to use and understand texts, and we practice this um, in the now ubiquitous commonplace book assignments um, that I and many of my early modern colleagues are using in classes now. Um, the central objective of my teaching then is to provide the necessary inventory of skills and tools that students need to, to confront the textual, material, technological, and ethical challenges of all the texts they encounter. The goal is to identify and comprehend how the material forms of texts shape our interactions with them and how those interactions have changed o over time. And so, in other words, stop thinking and start working. Stallybrass is in the Midwest this week, weirdly, so I feel like I need to invoke him at some point. Um, uh, as many of my students have remarked, including several of them on Monday, it's really difficult to stop thinking and let the material texts guide your inquiry. So we build our inventories by asking a series of questions, such as the ones found um, in a special collections worksheet that I often use, which asks students to look at a material object and ask the questions what, how, who, when, where, and why. That is, what is the object or artifact? Um, and this is a matter of ontology, of attending to the history and continuum of artifacts. Um, objects made by human hands and mechanical processes that are situated in a material world. How was it made or how has it existed? So that's a matter of media or medium or mediation. Who made it or remade it or has engaged with it for what purposes? So that's a matter of agency or the lack thereof. When and where is the artifact? So this is a matter of chronology, multiple temporalities, as well as place and environment. A shelf, a shed, uh, a rare book room, a classroom, uh, a dorm room. Why is it here, wherever here is, particularly a special collections library, um, uh, or um, the library stacks, for instance? Why is the object classified as this kind of object? Uh, and more importantly, what does it mean, or what might it mean? So thinking epistemologically, how can we make meaning out of this object? So how can we read and use and understand this artifact? How is it legible to us? How can we use our inventory of skills? Because different techne ask for different techniques and technologies of analysis, um, which is something that I stole from Bruce R. Smith, but also Alan Gailey uh, in one of his recent essays that I read on the plane. So if bibliography is a fundamentally interpretive enterprise, um, which I think it is, I encourage my students to learn how to speak about and for a material text by translating bibliography and book history into a form of storytelling. 
So that would be thinking or gaining knowledge through working in an embodied way. So it's um, a form of astonishment in the sense of being transfixed by or considering an object and the experience of considering that object. So if we're thinking in kind of blunt early modern terms, that would mean um, less Descartes and more Bacon. Um, <laughs> gotta rep the IC, you know what I'm saying? Um, the particular kind of material object I'll focus on today is a sonnet. And the examples I'll discuss are from a course I taught last spring called Renaissance Texts as Technology, which is basically an introduction to uh, the methodologies of the history of the book uh, with selected case studies from early modern England. And it's primarily an undergraduate course for advanced English majors, cross-listed with the UI Center for the Book, um, the MFA granting book arts program on campus. Uh, but the group that I had last semester also included uh, MA and PhD students in the English department, um, library science students, um, honors undergraduate students, and a couple of undergrads who didn't know what they were getting into, but ended up enjoying the ride. Um, so I did, I mean, that, that particular group gave me a chance to experiment in ways that I might not in other classes, but I do want to stress that for the most part, um, I taught the class as I have done it before, strictly to uh, um, an audience of undergraduates. And probably all things um, added up at the end of the semester, I probably used special collections and the Center for the Book less than a normal class because I thought it was interesting to try out um, uh, how you might be able to replicate this or do this kind of teaching in places that don't have the overabundance of bookish resources that we have in Iowa. So I often say that if I can teach you how to read a sonnet in all of its various forms using the necessary historical, critical, and interpretive skills and engaging with all of the textual and technological resources available, then you have the tools to read, that is to understand and creatively transform just about any kind of text. So I decided to put this to the test last semester by asking, what does a sonnet look like? With an emphasis on the look and like. And I'll say, because of the particular constellation of texts that I've been reading and a smart question from an undergrad last week, I've been thinking that, um, not thinking, sorry, I've been working because my students catch me on that all the time. Um, that Juliet's line, I'll look to like if looking liking move, is actually one of the most like complicated philosophical and phenomenological statements in Shakespeare. Um, and so I wanted to approach sonnets by looking at them, which also means attending to sight, sound, touch, and yes, taste and smell, even if only metaphorically through the vocabulary of sugared sweetness that contemporaries used to describe Shakespeare's honey-tongued poetry. The case study for the semester was a Shakespearean sonnet, which we found in a critical edition like this one, which foregrounds some of the tools of poetry, a hands, knife, quill, and ink. And if you turn to, say, sonnet number 138, you can practice your close reading with scansion, rhythm, rhyme, meter, the irregularity of iambic pentameter. You can access editorial commentary, the textual apparatus, critical introduction, etc. Um, and then we looked at the copy text, the 1609 sonnets, in order to see the editorial interventions that were made, as well as the early modern spelling, punctuation, letter forms, typography, and page format. To compare, 
the Ebo image, which we used to discuss remediation, including the history of facsimile technologies, and the money required for subscription <coughs> databases. So we also explored freely available and accessible online resources, like the Internet Shakespeare editions, where you can access a modernized version, uh, a transcription of the 1609 text, uh, along with a digital facsimile. Or uh, the Folger digital texts, also free, where you can get an edited version of Sonnet 138. Um, and if you really want, you can download it in a variety of formats, like uh, XML. Uh, I also used the Sonnets app for iPad, which among many other things includes the Arden 3 Shakespeare text and commentary, uh, yet another digital facsimile, which you can toggle back and forth with between the uh, edited uh, version and the facsimile, and a famous person, like famous Shakespeare professor Jim Shapiro, reciting the sonnet while sitting in a reading room in Butler Library that I spent a lot of time in, in grad school. Um, so my sensory experience of this is really interesting in a lot of ways um, beyond um, Jim's New York accent. Um, we also looked at the first printed versions of the sonnet in The Passionate Pilgrim, which is my current favorite thing in the world, uh, digitized here in the first uh, edition, which survives only in a fragment in a Saml band at the Folger Library. Um, the variant text of the poem in the second edition, the first full extant uh, edition. And also, um, the version of the poem in John Benson's 1640 Poems, which follows the Passionate Pilgrim rather than the 1609 text uh, for the poem. Um, we then compared, contrasted, and collated all the variant versions, either by eye or by hand, or with DH tools like Juxta, uh, and then also read the edited text of The Passionate Pilgrim with its accompanying commentary, including notes on variants in early modern manuscript copies uh, of the poem. Um, they can't um, uh, understand secretary hand, but uh, they can at least access the, the variants here. Um, I'm going to flip through really quickly the last couple of slides here just to show you some of the other ways that we looked at sonnets over the course of the semester, um, including, hey look, a website, uh, a transcription. This is my own transcription of the sonnet. I made everyone do this. Other forms of transcriptions that might take more interesting forms. That's a ringer from the Center for the Book who made that one. Um, uh, playing around with some various digital tools. A chart, which isn't a great chart, but it was good. Um, a good attempt. Pencils and paper to map out the sonnet. And finally, we played around with LED lights and little mini control boards um, to get way beyond text, including this one, which failed because they tried to light up every instance of the word love. Because, um, you know, love's complicated. <laughs> Especially in, in, in that poem. Um, and so, like, I, I would just kind of end by saying that one of the things um, that I learned from kind of doing all of these various forms, it's not just pedagogically getting different kinds of students thinking about particular material text in a different way. It's also kind of intellectually for myself made me think differently about what a sonnet is and is good for and how it should be represented, right? Um, 
maybe in additions you should print the ornaments around the poems as they appeared originally, or maybe you should think about alternate ways of understanding what's normally a rigorously structured verse form to open this up um, to, to alternate ways in which students can actually get some work done with the poem. Uh, so thank you very much. In this our little room, the compass grows large. Rebecca Wingfield is the William Saroyan Curator for American and British Literature at Stanford Libraries. In addition to providing research assistance to faculty and students at Stanford, she serves as the bibliographer for general and special collections materials related to Anglophone literature. Before joining Stanford in 2014, Rebecca worked in collection development in the Widener Library at Harvard University, where she was a selector for English language materials in the humanities and the social sciences. She also served as a collection development specialist for Harvard's Open Collections programs, a mass digitization project that developed theme-based digital collections based on rare book and manuscript materials. Before working in academic libraries, Rebecca served as a lecturer and postdoctoral teaching fellows in women, gender, and sexuality studies at Harvard University. She holds a PhD in English with a specialization in British modernism and late 19th and early 20th century popular fiction from Brown University and a master's in library science from Simmons College. Please join me in welcoming Rebecca. Okay, so as the curator uh, for literature at Stanford, I often get asked by faculty to do class sessions with the papers of beat poet Allen Ginsberg. Um, and I've used all sorts of different archival materials when I teach with the Ginsberg papers, everything from notebooks with ideas for poems, the original typescripts that are the, are the originary text of the beat movement in many ways in the case of the poem Hell, uh, photographs of Ginsberg apartment and his friends, uh, in the beat movement, letters from other poets, including Carl Solomon, to whom the poem is dedicated, uh, ephemera such as handbills and posters for poetry readings in the local area. But of all the materials, it's the audio recordings of Ginsburg reading the poem Howl that have resonated most strongly with students and faculty. Now, audio recordings work particularly well for Ginsburg, since his work and beat, poet more, beat poetry more generally are closely associated with the poetry reading as an event. After all, the foundational moment of beat history is Ginsburg's reading of part one of Howl at the Sixth Gallery in San Francisco in 1955. But the other reason for the strong responses, I think, is that working with audio is both very easy and very challenging. Easy in that students hear Ginsburg speak from the past. The indexical nature of the audio recording, the fact it records the traces of past speech, makes it seem immediate, self-evident, and present in voice, at least. But despite this seeming fullness, the recordings are haunted by absences, by a lack of context, by what we can't quite hear, by what we can't see. In addition, the recordings are complicated material objects. 
There are the physical media themselves. In the case of the materials, I use audio cassette tapes. There are the MP3 audio files, which is what we actually play in class. So the recordings have been reformatted, and that has some interesting ramifications for what happens in class. Uh, and also just the sound of Ginsburg's speech to contend with, so many different things to focus on. Now, I've used these recordings across several kinds of classes, from literature classes to film adaptation and performance studies. What I want to do is explore how these recordings have resonated with students in courses with a very different pedagogical approaches, which often shapes how they hear the poem. For the sake of time, I'm just going to focus on a couple of these. Um, but quickly, a word just on the audio recordings themselves. So the Ginsberg Collection is a virtual panoply of outmoded media formats. Uh, it's reel-to-reel -reel tape, audio cassettes, VHS tapes, uh, yeah, the gamut, pretty much. And that all has to be reformatted digitally for use uh, by the public. So I chose two recordings to use alongside other print and manuscript materials when I taught with the Ginsberg papers. Um, and I'm going to actually play you snippets of these recordings. They're going to be quite brief just for the sake of time. So the first um, is a 1959 studio recording of Hell. I saw the best minds of my generation destroyed by madness, starving, hysterical, naked, dragging themselves to the Negro streets at dawn looking for an angry fix. Angel-headed hipsters burning for the ancient heavenly connection to the starry dynamo in the machinery of night. Who poverty and tatters and hollow-eyed and high sat up smoking in the supernatural darkness of cold water flats floating across the tops of cities contemplating jazz. Who bared their brains... Okay, so that kind of gives you a sense of what the studio recording is like. Uh, you know, that was recorded a few years after the original Six Gallery reading in San Francisco. So when Ginsburg was quite early in his career, but it was also after the famous uh, obscenity trial that surrounded the publication of Hal by City Lights Books in 1956. So the second um, is a live reading, just dated February 10th, 1980, no place. Um, this is obviously much later in Ginsburg's career. At this point, he'd become a well-known poet, but also a kind of countercultural celebrity in his own right. So this is recording number two. saw the best minds of my generation destroyed by madness, starving, hysterical, naked, dragging themselves through the Negro streets at dawn looking for an angry fix, angel-headed hipsters burning for the ancient heavenly connection to the starry dynamo in the machinery of night. 
Okay, so that gives you a kind of a brief sense of the differences between the, the recordings of the poem Howl. So the first few classes I used these in were English classes, um, and I was really struck by how visceral the student responses were to the 1959 studio recording, the first recording I played. They hated it. Absolutely hated it. They quickly called it the bad reading. They thought it was lifeless, passionless. One student said he sounded like a newsman from the 50s. Um, you know, and here, part of what they're responding to is the controlled, you know, uh, recording studio conditions. Also, an older, kind of more formal way of reading poetry. But they are also responding to their own assumptions about what beat poetry is. Right. This was just quite simply not what they expected of Allen Ginsberg, beat poet. Right. They were expecting some sort of freewheeling poetry slam, and that is not what they got. Um, but once they began to kind of step back and think about what Ginsberg was doing in a studio recording the poem in 1959, they started to think more carefully about the kind of cultural legitimation that was at stake there. Right. In 1959, Ginsberg was an emerging poet, putting a reading, a scandalously high-profile kind of reading of a poem on record for his contemporaries. So there's this real effort to try to get it right. Um, and in contrast, students generally preferred the live readings from the 80s, which they described as kind of exuberant, immediate, expressive, improvisational. Um, when they talk about what they're hearing from the live reading, they're real focused on what the audience is doing, so you can hear the audience laugh, clap, and respond to the poem in different ways. Um, they also noticed that in the live reading, not in the segment I played you, but he starts to change the words of the poem. Um, so for instance, he actually changes a line and mentions opening coffee shops in Harvard Square. And everyone laughs uproariously. So you have a pretty good idea that it's in Harvard Square somewhere, the reading, um, even though that's not indicated in the finding aid or anything. Um, but across these readings, they're really attentive to how Ginsburg is performing the poem in a particular situation for a particular reason. Um, but the first few times I used these recordings, I noticed something really strange happening in class. So usually when you have a class in a special collections environment, right, everyone's looking at material objects. And instead, when you play the recordings, um, what happens is what happens in this just happened in this room. Everyone kind of just sits there and listens. It was like the class had become weirdly detached from the material object. So I decided uh, for subsequent classes, I was actually going to bring the media in. So I, I also worked on a class that was on the 1960 counterculture, and I actually brought the audio cassettes in, and those are copies of them right there. So this was a class that was really uh, pedagogically placing an emphasis um, on having students work with material culture and getting used to um, working with uh, special collections materials as well. Now, this class was much more attentive to the issue of media and how that mediates the poem. So for the Fantasy Studios recording, they were attentive to the fact that it was the first of many takes of the poem. And so they began to ask, well, did it make the final cut? And the answer is no. In fact, none of the studio takes that Gensberg did in the, in the 50s made it onto the Fantasy record. He decided, actually, that, th that he needed a live recording for hell. So some of the other poems that were recorded and put out on the fantasy LP were studio recordings, but in the case of Howl, it was actually a live reading, um, not the ones that they were hearing. Um, and for the, uh, the live recording, they were very attentive to the kind of shifting vocal levels in the poem. Again, you couldn't get much of a sense from the short clip that I played, you know, but sometimes he's closer to the microphone than others. Like at the beginning, you could hear him kind of mumbling, and then it's, he starts to read and gets closer to the microphone. 
Um, and for them, that kind of sounded like what they call the kind of amateur or bootleg recording of the poem. And even though it's kind of flawed in its you know, audio style, uh, for them, that kind of was an indication of a marker of kind of liveness and spontaneity, right, of the flaws in the recording. Um, but they also began to think about the role of portable personal recording technologies like the cassette recorder on the documentation, dissemination, and reception of Ginsberg's poetry. So he kind of becomes, when you start listening to all these audio recordings, a poet of the media age and a live performance poet. Um, in a way, a lot of poets from older eras really just, they aren't because we don't have a record of any sort of live reading. Um, the other class I want to talk about is a class called Poems, Poetry, Worlds. This was a class that was focused on how poetry works, so you know, <laughs> formalist poetics. Uh, and the TAs wanted the class to visit special collections as a kind of historicist repost to the formalism of the class. Um, this class, weirdly enough, actually, they didn't like the live recording. They thought it was theatrical. It was Ginsburg playing the character of Ginsburg for the audience. They really liked the 59 studio recording. Of all the classes I've used these two recordings with, this is the one that thought the studio recording was great because it allowed them to hear Ginsburg grapple with the form of the poem as he reads it. Um, so they had read an essay in which Ginsburg talks about the form of Howell being in part structured around breath, that breath forms the line unit of the poem. Uh, and they said, you know, you can hear Ginsburg in the recording pace himself to get to the end of the line without having to breathe. And then you hear him go and breathe, you know, breathe and then start the next line, like when he's, you know, reading the, the poem. So for them, Ginsburg's voice kind of materializes the line of the poem in the reading very differently than in the printed text. So this is the first edition of Hell, and this is what the lines look like, right? The line is too big for the format of the book, but somehow the recording, that doesn't get in the way in the way that the printed text, uh, it does. Um, so just in conclusion, um, these are just a couple of examples of how audio recordings of Ginsburg reading Hell offer a particularly rich way to complicate what often goes on in a typical literature class, kind of like the VMI cadets here who are reading Hell, which is that you know everyone's got a text and it's fixed and it's stable and everyone's reading the same text. But the audio recordings really open the poem up to the sound of an individual voice, which can allow them to hear the technique of the poem differently but also reveals the poem to be, in many ways, a performance by an individual in a particular moment, uh, at a particular location, for a particular audience. And so the different performances of the poem found in the audio recordings <coughs> in some ways unsettle the text itself, which is often the way that a student is going to encounter a poem. And the poem starts to become a living, historically situated series of performances. Thank you. So as you'll remember, Ray, Lynn, and Stephanie talked about quilts and slash as texts. Kyle, um, if I can summarize in three words, architecture and inscription, um, Adam on Sonnet 138 and LEDs, and, um, <laughs> and, and Rebecca on, on the multiple instantiations of Howell and their cultural resonances. 
Um, we have about 22 minutes. So I actually think what would be best if would be that if people could please stand and ask your question, and then if the appropriate person who's the, to whom the question is being posed could stand and respond, I, I think we could we could pretty much hear everybody in this sonetto um, here. So um, so let's try to do that, and uh, I think we're I'll moderate the questions and just in terms of picking, but then we'll we'll go from there. Who would like to be first? Please, in the back. Approach reflects back 
or could potentially reflect back in the assessment? Uh, um, I can say, because I teach, well, some of the experiments that we did like that is a just kind of classroom activity, um, and there's not, not necessarily any assessment involved, although when we do um, activities like that that go kind of outside the bounds of a normal literary classroom, um, often students will get interested in following up on that, either for their final project or for some other personal project, um, in part because of the department that I work in, um, the English department, where we have 850 English students, most of whom want to be the next great American novelist. Um, I do, they have the option, uh, actually I, most of them take it, to, to do a creative final project um, where it's not the, the kinds of normal assessment that we've done through either writing papers or research exercises, the kinds of normal things that they, that they do. Um, but as long as they can describe what they've done and how it accords with what we have done in class uh, over the course of the semester, I'm happy. Um, it's one of those things where if you do it, you, you do it. <laughs> uh, and, and that's that. Um, the, to my mind, um, bringing, if I were to do some of these activities again, I would do them earlier in the semester, and partly it was logistical problems and not being able to schedule some of this before. Um, and so like playing around with the LED lights was at the very end of the semester, but that really did help um, students kind of see like, well, if we're using the sonnet as a case study, um, there are multiple ways in which you can use the skills for some other kind of text that has nothing to do, to do with Shakespeare. Um, because it is the kind of course, and I, for the most part, my students are interested in other time periods, other kinds of literature, uh, poetry, or fiction. So as long as they have the tools to do something, whether that's creative or whether that's, um, you know, more broadly analytical speaking, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm all for it, so. Um, I think a little bit too. So one of the things I didn't mention that I have my students do is because a lot of information about faults is transmitted orally in addition to the text, I had them listen to um, oral recordings from the culture who made this quilt and how they're talking about it. Um, and so um, because I work in art history, it's a very visual medium, uh, instead of necessarily just having my students write a paper at the end, I often have them create a video podcast um, in Teams. So <laughs> they love that. <laughs> um, but I do have them create a video podcast where they have to discuss a work of art and be with the work of art when they're discussing it. Um, and it includes all their research for the semester and engaging it because I think it's really important that they learn to communicate not only through writing, but that they learn to communicate um, their ideas in a clear and concise way orally as well, um, based on sort of the longer research projects that they've done in a way that they can explain it to somebody who's not necessarily taking the class, um, because I think it applies to what they will do with their time and their lives once they leave the classroom. They're not all of them become art historians. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to cheat and say, come to the pedagogy lunch tomorrow, and I will tell you all about what I do. <laughs> Thanks. That was a really exciting batch of papers. This is really for anyone who wants to take it except for Adam, because uh, I think these really show like what I think one of the really exciting trends in bibliography now, which is the way bibliography is kind of expanding to engage with other kinds of object-oriented disciplines. And all of you, I think, thought about that and talked about thinking about whether it's building size text, quilt as text, um, or hand text. But 
I'd be interested to hear you elaborate on sort of what you think the tools and techniques and habits of your of like your native discipline of art history or art history of material culture or art architecture or media studies like what how those techniques interact with or give what they give you and what kind of more traditional bibliographic habits of mind and tools bring to the table um, like are they sort of the same or are they complementary or what more like specifically how do you see them relating to each other? This this may or may not really answer your question, but one thing I noticed with the audio recordings, like particularly with the formalist poetics class, right? So they came with a pre-advanced formalist vocabulary if you're talking about the poem, right? But that's really derived from talking about the text of a poem. And so what, what the audio recordings did was kind of challenge that vocabulary. Like they were hearing important things, but they didn't have a shared vocabulary for that, and they kept referring it back to a, a formalist term or back to the text itself of the poem. Um, and I don't know if that answers your question, but I think one of the interesting things about using unusual kinds of materials in special collections is that it, it kind of unsettles kind of their disciplinary comfort zone, right? I mean, they still have some way to kind of locate the thing that is challenging that how I find one of the things about the Akkadian students is that they're they're, they're really bad at, at writing, uh, but they have a phenomenal visual sensibility. So once you give them the freedom to uh, think in images or, or, or even to respond to, to any given week's material by uh, sending an image around to the class rather than a, than a written response, say you get some extraordinary uh, responses, and they come up with things that I would never have dreamed of associating. But 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 once you uh, once you figure it out, it actually makes perfect sense. It becomes a very interesting uh, process. Also, the, the intelligence regarding the relationship between uh, image and text, for instance, is one that they are quite familiar with. Any good set of architectural books, ones, for instance, has that built into the, to the nature of the object itself. And, and, and so some things they're actually quite uh, good at, at working with if you give them the freedom to think that way. Please, in the back. Thank you all for your presentations. They were amazing. Um, I know this isn't your primary focus in your courses, but I'd really be interested to hear you talk about, whoever wants to answer, how these kinds of pedagogical strategies that you're employing in your courses um, end up communicating or evoking particular affective responses in the students that enrich their understandings of the texts or the particular historical moment. So one kind of example I could give, um, not quilt specifically, but Lakota winter counts, which are also uh, telling a story and a history on um, Hyde. I had students who were debating um, the merits of oral, of oral history and visual forms of history compared to government documents. And they basically kept trying to come down the side of federal government documents about Native American life are more accurate in how they're told. And so I just asked them, I said, okay, um, we've been talking about things like war, um, immigration, et cetera, et cetera. Can you tell me the first instance in your own family history of your introduction to these things, religious persecution? And so I got stories about you know, World War II, the Holocaust, uh, 
Mormon polygamy, etc. And no one in the room could get past <coughs> three generations. And I said, okay, but this Lakota winter count can go back centuries for this family. And so I think having the text and the object and then interrogating it emotionally really did help them see like, oh wow, this actually is much more accurate. And then you can get clues like, oh, this Lakota winter count is talking about smallpox. And then you can compare that to what is the federal text. Mm -hmm. So I think, um, I don't know if you have examples from quilts. Quilts are very emotional for people. Yeah, um, I would say they're kind yeah. of, you often see, um, even I, I mean, I, I don't want to get too much into like the gender aspect here, but you will see all of the students come in and kind of relax around it, um, which with art history is particularly tough. You come in, they, they see a giant painting on, on the screen, and sometimes they're like, oh gosh, what am I supposed to say about it? But you do, you have a very different feeling in the classroom um, when you're using an object like that. Um, Sometimes, too, the fragmentary nature, like of the Passant Pilgrim piece that Adam showed, you know, when it's not in the Norton anthology, but it's it's historically tenuous. Mm -hmm. It's in my experience sometimes that elicits a great reaction from mm -hmm. the students because um, they they see history happening in in its um, fragility. And I think that can be very moving for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Also, just the fact that you're allowed to have feelings about poems inside the classroom <laughs> <laughs> is a big step. Yeah. Yeah. And just in the, in the case of the recordings of Howl, you hear laughter. Like, it's okay to laugh mm -hmm. along with the poem, which is not a typical response in a literary uh, studies classroom. Yeah, sure. I think the other thing that happens, too, is that a lot of people start to see that people in their own lives, for example, like my grandma who I showed you, she, she never went, she didn't finish high school, right? But she had a skill and an ability to do a close reading that I just didn't have. I had to train myself. And so I think students start to realize like, oh, mm -hmm. our own story as ordinary Americans is also critical to the American story and what our perspective is and what our family is, is important. So I think that's another thing that objects do. Please. Um, this is for anyone who cares to answer, but um, my observation for young people that are basically your students is that they, do you find that they're disassociated from the value that a lot of us put in material culture and in objects because they're living in a more digital world and you know, there's this sort of big trend to not have too much stuff. You know, nobody wants their parents or their grandparents, you know, China and that kind of thing. So are you able to sort of bring them around to some of the value of these things, or you change them at all in that thinking? I think one of the things that's coupled with what you're saying about not um, necessarily wanting to have much stuff is a, is a, a burgeoning reinterest in the handmade also alongside of that. So I think that with a lot of the objects that we end up talking about, um, at least for the Nye or with video cassette, or with, the, with cassette tapes, um, <laughs> mixtapes of the, you know, your parents, exactly. <laughs> I think um, something that's handmade or put together like that does still hold meaning for them, in my experience. Somebody else might speak I mean, well. if anything, I think they're more interested in the material because yeah. they inhabit, uh, you know, a digital world, yeah. you know, for so much of the time. Um, but they're 
graduate school, and you know, I find they actually usually have very kind of strong responses to material, like to the audio cassettes they love. Um, you know, usually when I bring them out, like the actual audio cassettes, then the you know, and I show them the, the next question is, well, where's the cassette player? Yeah. I would just add that, especially in um, stand up, um, uh, in the location that I am, that if you give them the tools, they'll run with it um, immediately. I mean, we spent I feel like half the semester talking about audio books and the issues that they raise. Um, rather than ebooks, it's like you, you give them. So, like the Iowa City Book Festival is probably happening like now, but book festival means authors and poets reading their writing so that you can buy their books. You, t you know, get them to think about a book as a material object, and they're more than happy to think about pretty much everything else as a, a kind of material text, one way or another. And then they get really excited about the various things that they themselves find valuable, whether it's their Kindle or the antique photographs that they collect in their spare time, or whatever it is. Thank you. Kyle, in a world of CAD drawings, how do they feel about the material door? I think I, I agree with what was just said, that there's, they're getting kind of sick of the digital stuff at this point, at least the other things. And, and they, sort of, they long for some, something more, really. Please. Um, I'm just curious if you guys have done this primarily in classes of English majors or English art history, such as majors within your uh, architecture, majors within your respective discipline, or whether you have uh, um, whether you have or are thinking about trying this out in like a Common Core class where you have a bunch of business majors and engineering majors taking their one English class. It strikes me that these are also really useful tools for getting non-majors really interested. I'm kind of curious if you had any experiences with also any differences between how the majors of your discipline respond to it versus what this might open up for non-majors in your discipline. I can say for myself, I worked on a class called Tangible Things with Laurel Thatcher Ulrich. The first time it was a seminar of 12 students, and the next year I had 400 students, and it was uh, gen ed, and it's now online. And so, yes, we what we ended up doing with that many students was having them curate exhibits and groups, because that was the only way to sort of handle that many bodies. So I found that, yes, very, very excited. And also students want to know what's in their local community, and so it's a great way to get engaged. So that excited them. This, my question is for Kyle. Um, you know, we've talked about historical objects, and I noticed that many of your examples kind of, of architectural annotations critique the dystopian present, I guess. Do you talk about the architectural structure or its annotations as congealed wishes for the future or utopian gestures to the future? think we tried to what we tried to do this time around was to think about what might be the implications for the future of the sort of capacity to read the past that we're trying to um, learn I suppose that there is a I think there is a certain kind of, of architecture that allows for um, a, a richer uh, sort of form of reading to, to take place. That's not exactly what you asked, I know. I was uh, following up on your comment about wishing your colleagues would think more about the structures in space and time. Yeah. 
My, my impression is that the examples that I have tended to, to find have been uh, accidental examples, in a sense. Um, that the forms of annotation that we have looked at have been things that were not intended or designed into the, uh, into the life of the building originally. Um, that's not universally true, I suppose, and, and I suppose I could come up with a series of examples where, that, that would be closer to what you've been thinking, and maybe I should do that. One more? Please. I, I think one of the things that's coming out of all of these papers, which were really fabulous, um, one of the things that's coming out for me as somebody who sort of often struggles in general conversation to explain to friends what it is I do, <laughs> uh, what is this rare book? Like, you know, like the, that sort of struggle to like outbound to market to sell to explain what you do, and I'm and I'm wondering that as you kind of bring in these new disciplines and your current <coughs> disciplines or new series of objects or you know they're experts in one thing, but then you're sort of defamiliarizing. How much do you find yourself sort of doing the outbound translation work of how do I explain to my grandmother why the museum is important, you know, um, versus letting them, as I think Rebecca, you were saying, that they were resorting to this old language that they were familiar with, you know, how much are we working to take what we know and make it comfortable for them versus bring them into a discipline that is very formal, like, say, bibliography, which by its definition is all about rules and things like that, right? And, yeah, I'm not being very eloquent, but I'm just struggling in my own life and my own kind of conversations about this expertise and this familiarity and how to kind of make that accessible. So I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit to your classroom experiences of, are you letting them be loosey-goosey or are you insisting that they use rules? Are you having exercises that let them take A and mishmash it with B or are you wanting to see that they really grasp the basics of quilt making? You know? So I'll stop there because I, I probably let that really get this Well, in the case of, of the audio recordings, I usually let them be loosey-goosey because in a way, like I said in my presentation, the audio recordings are so easy. Like they have an instant response, right? Like this one's good, this one's terrible. Um, and then you can kind of use the, the language they're using to talk about the recordings. I mean, one reason I chose two is I wanted them to have that contrast because that helps them get at what's unique about each um, in ways that kind of generate a productive discussion. So that kind of helps the kind of generating a discourse out from what's really a pretty informal conversation to begin with. I, I guess I would say at its core, critical bibliography and rare books and objects are about learning to read things in different ways. And I found myself even, you know, I have now learned how to read a quilt. This last July, I was in an NEH program, and we were at Yale University, and for some reason, we were tasked with reading Victorian bird cages. And I was like, <laughs> the heck do I know about Victorian bird cages? Turns out I know a lot, because I know how to read objects now, because I keep training myself with different books and different objects. And so I think, um, in terms of like out, outsourcing or you know, <coughs> translating, I think realizing that communities have knowledge, and there is embodied knowledge other places, and I am not always the expert, and that I have so much to learn, and that's great, and so teaching students, you know, you, I, I'm at USC right now, so most of them practice in art, and so that's something that I've been really taking advantage of, or they practice in media, and so 
saying, I didn't live in the 19th century either. Like, let's learn together. Let's see what we can do. <laughs> <laughs> I know you think I'm old, but you're not actually with this easy hard object. <laughs> I did live in the 19th century. Um, yeah, indeed. Um, had we but world enough in time, this conversation would be no crime. But in fact, um, we are over time. So let's continue the conversation over our break, but not before we thank our speakers. And, and let's thank Beth for convoking us. Thank you.